Hello, and welcome to the Broadway Binge Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Hannah. And we are going to give you the history of American musical theater by reviewing and ranking all of the most important musicals from Showboat to today. Today we are doing 1951's The King and I by Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, This is a musical that is very near and dear to my heart. Last week we talked about South Pacific, which was Hannah's first ever acting role, was as one of the children in South Pacific. Unfortunately. My first ever acting role in uh, sixth grade, it was the Lincoln Hall Middle School production of The King and I, where I played uh, Louis, Anna's son. Great. <laughs> um, so it's like in Whistle Happy Tune, I was like, make believe you're brave and the trick will take you far. I love this um, show you history. You may be as brave <laughs> as they make believe Stop. you are. And um, the, the funny thing was I was, uh, I was not good at acting, <laughs> um, but I was young and I was willing to go for it. But they sort of... The problem was that, like, my voice kind of dropped in between oh. casting and opening night. That's uh, that's that's troubling. And, and the funny thing is, it's not like the notes are out of my range or anything, but now if I was trying to hit the notes that the little boy sings, I would know how to, like, support my voice properly. Right. Whereas when you're little, you can just hit those notes flawlessly without any, like, breath support or anything. Right. So my voice is cracking all over the place. Can we get, like, a little sampling? I don't have it with me. <laughs> there is a DVD version that I won't be able to get a hold of, I don't think, can you just in like, Chicago. Can you do it live for us? No. Because my voice okay. is in that way. It's a strong no. So basically, I mean, no. I would be totally happy to play the embarrassing audio tape. I just don't have it. All right, well, I'll make you a deal. If I find my embarrassing audio of me singing Dita Deal. Which is just not, not something we I We should have done this over picture. Thanksgiving. We both yeah, went home we over Thanksgiving. Home. All right, well, c- coming attractions. Coming attractions. Maybe we'll embarrass ourselves for your... Uh, benefit yeah um yeah so i i think i did a serviceable job uh the other exciting thing and this is going to go into some of what we'll talk about later is that um you know very often you uh in this show a lot of white people are sometimes cast in the asian roles and in roles and in the lincoln hall middle school production shula longcorn so i played anna's son this show is the king and i it's about the king of siam in like the 1860s abraham lincoln times and a british school teacher comes to sort of quote-unquote, civilize the court, not civilize, westernize it more. Like, he wants his royal children to have a western education, the king does. So he brings this English school teacher, and they have a sort of, like, will-they-won't-they romance, like, sort of unconsummated, but, like, deeply felt romance. And each of them has a son. Um, His son is the Prince Chulongkorn, heir to the throne of Siam. And I played Anna's son, and the son of King Chulongkorn was played by my older brother, Greg. Oh, dear. Um, And there's actually... A uh, a song in the it wasn't in the original Broadway production I don't think or in the movie but it has been in multiple versions so I'm gonna play to open us off I'm gonna play a version from the new Lincoln Center revival mm-hmm. of the King and I of the song that Louis and Shula Longcorn sing together and this is what me and my brother sang I wish I had the actual oh, version for you uh, here is a puzzlement reprise. Don't worry, this kid's actually Asian. This is not me. Okay, unexpected introduction <laughs> to the King and I episode. Hey! Uh, but right. the, it just goes to show this was Roger and Hammer. The last episode, we uh, they dealt with an Asian setting and Asian characters. Right. This time, they really go all in. Yeah, it is interesting that this was the follow-up. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Um, maybe to start off, like, we talked a lot uh, when we talked about South Pacific about the ways in which that musical was controversial um, and the ways in which it kind of made space for discussions about racism and interracial marriage. Um I would argue that the King and I isn't quite doing that. I mean, it's about cultural clash and, like, but but it's something a little bit different. You know what I mean? Yeah, I saw, um, when it was revived recently, 
they sort of changed... They didn't change it a lot in terms of script. I don't think... Unfortunately, I did not see the revival version. I have listened to the soundtrack, but that's basically identical to the, the modern soundtrack. But I saw someone write in the Huffington Post at the time, and this is the second episode where I've quoted the Huffington. I'm not like a huge HuffPo fan. It's just like when you Google criticism of an old Broadway musical, like the only people publishing these pieces are HuffPo. So the, the writer of it... Um, they called the original King and I very racist, which like I don't know if I would necessarily agree who's, with. Who's the writer? Um, it's Christian Lewis is his name. Okay, well that's not. I know Bess Rowan from Huffington Post. Hi, Bess. Um, but that's um, the only Huffington Post writer I know. So anyway. But one thing that he says, which I thought was interesting, is that the show itself, and this this is not like Rogers and Hammer said themselves, but the show itself, written by them, sort of intentionally is a battle of racism versus sexism, in a way. Yeah. Which I think is really cool and really interesting, and in that she has all these views about the people of Siam, and and Roger and Hammerstein don't present it as if this is a good thing. Like, she clearly has right. some, like, things she needs to get over with her view of them as, like, uncivilized and doing things incorrectly. Right. And the Siamese, in this show, I'm not saying they actually were this way. I mean, they probably were. Everyone was sexist in 1860 all over the world. Sure. In this play, you have a character, the king, and I don't know if this reflects actual Simon at the time or not, but in the play, the king is very sexist. He has a lot of different wives. He has sex slaves, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and he treats Anna poorly because she is a woman. So each of them is sort of prejudiced against the other. Right. One has one sexist, one racist a little bit, and they sort of never completely come to terms with it, but they do, yeah. they, they make forward progress. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We t it's impossible for me to, like, not think about South Pacific, partly because we just recorded that episode, but also because, um, I don't know, we talked about, like, sort of the, or I talked about, like, the vague ending of South Pacific, like, where mm -hmm. Emil comes home to Nellie, and it's sort of at the table, and it's never fully resolved, and I kind of feel like the whole of King, I, King and I um, ex exists in that sort of space <laughs> yeah i mean it does result so the king dies at the end well, um sorry to spoil it but spoil this, it. this takes place in the 1860s so like it's not the same king of thailand <laughs> as it was back then like he definitely is gonna die at some point and these are real characters um uh, like all these people are real basically the uh the way they got the story was that um anna leon owens who was the woman brought to siam mm -hmm was like a real person. Mm. Um, she wrote memoirs, and then Margaret Landon in 1944 wrote a novel called Anna and the King of Siam, which is derived from these memoirs and sort of storyified it, mm -hmm. sort of took all these like random anecdotes and just sort of made a story into it. Similarly to how in South Pacific, mm. the, the guy who wrote that um, took all these incidents that he encountered during World War II and like made some coherent short stories into it, which is sort of fictionalized versions of the real world. Um, and there was a famous uh, actress, Gertrude Lawrence, not the greatest singing voice in the world, and she'd probably be the first to tell you that. That wasn't her specialty, but she, um, her attorney slash agent, Fanny Holtzman, um, was looking for a role for her in 1950s, so she said, hey, Rodgers and Hammerstein, how about Anna and the King? Um, which had been turned into a non-musical movie. Mm -hmm. And at first they were skeptical, but they watched the movie and realized, like, okay, like, this has some merit. So they decided to do it with Gertrude Lawrence. And while there have been, like, amazing... She was always attached to the project, then. Yes, she was from the start. Um, okay. And even though now you sometimes have amazing singers playing the role of Anna, like Kelly O'Hara in the right. recent revival, who has mm -hmm. a, an unbelievably good voice, the, her songs were purposely written to be relatively simple so that Gertrude Lawrence could sing them. This is not a song, a show for belters. Um, the King was played by Yul Brynner. It's not meant to, like, sound good. Right. Um, and the the few love songs there are, it's there's the secondary couple here, much more of a traditional secondary couple than before, is a uh, slave named... Well, I think she's officially one of his wives. Like, the king acquires her as a slave, and she becomes one of his many wives, but she's actually in love with a Burmese guy, and Burma is, like, the neighbor of Thailand, currently committing genocide against the Rohingya people in 2017, unrelated to mm -hmm. this. But anyway, her, um, she has a Burmese lover, and they need to escape, so Anna sort of, like, helps them escape. Yeah. But I don't know where I was going. No, I mean, just the secondary plot. I don't know. Um, yeah. But go, get back to um, the lead of the original, King and I. Oh, Gertrude Lawrence? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so she's cool. Oh. You had, come on. You, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, um, them hills. Yeah. That's, that's a poor way to phrase it. So, so she actually, unfortunately, only got to be in the show for a year and a half because she unexpectedly died of cancer. She had liver cancer and did not know it at the time. Um, the show still had a good run even after she 
died, unfortunately. They put several actresses in the role, and it had a run of uh, 1,246 performances, uh, which is very long, especially at the time. Mm -hmm. um, there was a 1956 film starring Neil Brenner. Um, so yeah, this isn't like a huge singer's show. Yeah, well, this gets back to what you were saying last week about South Pacific, which I thought was so interesting. Um, just the ways in which Rodgers and Hammerstein really tailor roles to the characters. The characters, yeah. yeah. Which, yeah, I don't know, I, um, I appreciate. I mean, I feel like King and I, musically, I don't know, it, 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 it feels like it has a little more more patter than South Pacific, I'd say. I mean, it still has some yeah. really lush ballroom I mean, like the song I just played, like, there are times I am not sure, absolutely no. So that's a, a reprise, a reprise yeah. <laughs> of, of the King song. I'll play Yul Brenner singing. So he's, like, sort of, at this point, Anna has come and disrupted a lot of things. She's showing these kids world maps. And they, they, like they didn't realize... Mary Poppins, but racist. I don't know how, <laughs> how racist is this. It's okay, well, so I think... Okay, we'll get to that. Is. Let's play the song. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, so this is like, Anna's sort of been introducing all these concepts, and you get Seal Brenner, like, is both trying to figure out, like, to what extent he should westernize himself, because a lot of the western nations are making overtures to Thailand. Thailand, incidentally, I think is the only sort of Asian country that never was either completely conquered or sort of dominated by a foreign power. Right. Um, like, pre like every Asian country at some point um, in you know, the recent centuries has been dominated either by one of the Western countries or by Japan, and then Japan itself was uh, occupied by America. Thailand the whole time remained free, and they that the fact that they remained pretty much free of domination by Western power... And the 1800s was very impressive, and yeah. like the king of this story has deserves a lot of credit for that. So here's anyway, here's Yul Brenner, who by the way is a white Russian immigrant. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I love I love Yul Brenner. I don't blame him for any of this. Uh, I also love him from the Magnificent Seven movie and the, the original Westworld movie. Um, but here we go. Okay. <laughs> Then he talks about like trade with other nations and stuff. Yeah, so this is not a singer's show. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about at this point? Should we just like talk? Let's get into. I mean, let's talk. I think similarly. Like, let's let's unpack yeah, some of the. Let's unpack some of the baggage. Thing. I mean, I don't know. I think. I mean, like whether or not the shows. It's the same discussion we had about South Pacific. There's the discussion of like the content of the show itself, and then there's also the co the. Um, talk about the casting of like the casting. Yeah, and, and and most of the if you like sort of just look up internet criticism of the show, a lot of the discussion is of the casting. That's not a discussion. That interests me as much. In fact, because I think we're all me and Hannah are on the same page. I think yeah. most of the theater world is on the same page at this point that you do not cast white actors in these roles. Yeah. Um, so like a lot of the conversation about the show is based around that, and I feel like that's kind of like a finished. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some high schools and colleges that'll disagree, but like on Broadway itself, that's like pretty much like a done debate. Like we are not casting white actors in, in Asian roles anymore. Um, I mean, I mean, but like, so yeah, it, I mean, it is yeah. happening still. But it, it is, yeah, yeah. So, but, I mean, but it's clear you're not supposed to. Right. But I think it's an, an interesting debate because it is uncertain. Is like, okay, let's assume that we're only going to cast appropriate like right. act roles like for race. Now that we've decided that, is this musical just a racist musical or is it not? I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'm and, less... and, and to what degree is it? Because every old musical, like. Even if it like, even if we can appreciate it for its time, like yeah. has some uncomfortable things. How uncomfortable is this, and is it worth still putting up? I sort of would say yes, it is worth putting up, but it's a, definitely a conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's also you know, kind of just not for us to say is how I mostly feel. Like I'm less familiar, admittedly, with King and I than I am with South Pacific, um, and you know, I think the there's the casting issues, but then beyond that, like you know, it is a play that like has actors literally singing in. Like a very stereotypical like Asian accent, yeah, um, and like that's just written into the play, and so like that's I don't know enough about like the writing of the play and, and or the book to know how much like that's part of it, but that's tricky because that perpetuates lots of stereotypes. So I suppose so, but then on the other hand, I mean, if like if these are all people from like Thailand, Siam, 
Um, in case you didn't know, the country we call Thailand now is called Siam at the time. So he's the king of Siam, but it's modern Thailand. If they were, tr- I mean, they would be speaking English with an accent. And it's one thing when you have white actors doing fake accents based on like sort of stereotypes they have. Mm-hmm. But the Lincoln Center production, I think, was very well received, um, even by people who didn't like the original show for sort of like not trying to glam it up. Um, I mean, this HuffPower article I was reading was talking about how original productions were very big into Orientalism, like giant sets, like showing like the glitz and glam of like like the East, like the magical fancy East. Whereas the new production was very you know spare sets, very concerned on showing uh, well researched and showing what it was actually like inside of the time, the costumes they would actually be wearing. I would imagine they probably had like accent coaches and stuff trying to like instead of doing, like, a stereotype speaking with, like, more genuine... Not that everyone in the cast was Thai. There were, you know, a lot of Filipino actors, East Asian actors, um, but more appropriate accents. So, yeah, I don't... Like, it's it's definitely, like, weird that we're constantly doing this old show written by two white guys. However, like, I don't think a modern version of it is that problematic. I feel like Lincoln Center kind of... Whatever issues did exist with doing it now, I feel like Lincoln Center solved those problems... And while some random regional theater or community theater might do a problematic version, right. I think the mystery of how to do a uh, 21st century version of King and I has been solved by I mean, Lincoln Center. So, okay, so I was just pulling up this review. So we talked a little bit about Bart Scher last week, who mm-hmm. um, directed um, South Pacific as well at Lincoln Center. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read you two paragraphs. Um, so this is talking about Scher and his production, um, which starred um, Kelly O'Hara and, um, what the hell is his name? Ken, Ken Watanabe. Um, yes. So, uh, this is a review in the New York Times by Ben Brantley, of course. <laughs> As he demonstrated with his glorious South Pacific in 2008, also a Lincoln Center theater production that starred Miss O'Hara, Mr. Schur is no strong-armed revisionist. He works from within vintage material, coaxing shadowy emotional depths to turn up a surface that might otherwise seem shiny and slick. If Mr. Schur's The King and I isn't quite the revelation that his South Pacific was, it's because he's mining material that has fewer secrets to yield. Tamper too much with the basic appeal of the show, captured in a startlingly, startlingly self-aware lyric in the song Western People Funny, that describes the British as feeling so sentimental about the Oriental, and it capsizes. I'm going to give us one more paragraph. Mr. Schur neither apologizes for nor condemns such sentimentality. Instead, he sheds a light that isn't harsh or misty, but clarifying. He understands very well what makes the show work, and he delivers it clean, scrubbed, and naked, allowing us to see the king and I playing. Um, I will say, um, just because I think it bears mentioning, Ben Brantley is also a, um, a white person, so mm-hmm. his take on, you know, if the show was problematic or painful, um, I would be more interested to hear from um, someone who's Asian. Yeah, and I was yeah. looking up some art. I didn't find anything... I'm sure there are articles um, about that. So let's uh, let's play the, actually the song from the revival. I switched. I had been had the original cast open on Spotify, but there's just a lot of missing songs from that album. So I'm switching from this point on to the 2015 uh, Lincoln Center revival to play all the songs. So here's the song "Western People Funny." It talked about, and it's being sung by the the wives of the king. Like, it's a good point. Like, they're saying the Westerners are trying to prove we're not barbarians, but, like, their dress is savage. Right, yeah. It's sort of, like, cultural relativism. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, and we didn't talk before when we were talking about sort of the race within the show, like, about, you know, putting it within its historical context. Um, nothing like this had been written before. You know, yeah. we, like, these weren't conversations that were happening um, anyway in mainstream culture. And so I do think Rodgers and Hammerstein were trying to open the door to having these types of conversations. And, you know, I think this is much more interesting and complex than South Pacific, because South Pacific mm-hmm. was a very sort of straightforward, and this was needed for, for uh, the time, it was very straightforward, like, racism is bad, interracial marriage is good, which right. are true things that not everyone in America agreed about at the time, so they needed to be said. 
Um, and that was in 49. This is in 51. Um, whereas this one is much more subtle. It's saying there's no... It's not that one side is good and one side is bad. England has its problems with racism. Siam has its problems with sexism. Every culture has prejudice. Every culture has right. bigotry. Every culture thinks the other culture is savages. And, like, it would be very easy to just sort of make it, like, the English are the bad guys. Right. Um, in, in sort of a, a more a modern thing, like the English are the other colonizers are the bad guys. Back then, it would be easier to say the Siamese are sexist, our culture is better. Right. But Roger and Hammerstein resisted both of those impulses and pointed out we're all people, and all yeah. people are bigots, all people are prejudiced, and we all have our own levels. Some people are really prejudiced. Some people have just, like... Like, Anna herself is, like, very, like, she doesn't think she's a racist, but, like, very slight biases yeah. against other cultures. And it's, it's much more subtle and much more, so it's, it's harder to sort of grasp, but I think that makes it, it's so understated That's and subtle that I really appreciate it almost mm-hmm. more than South Pacific. I have two thoughts. I mean, number one is, you know, it's still written, I mean, we've said this and we'll say it again and again, it's still written by two white people, so, you know, it's easy for them to be like, we're... You know, we're pretty bad with that racism, huh? But um, this other historical culture probably was sexist, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. So there is, like, an element of, like, them, you know, letting people off the hook in that way. I also get that that was probably very palatable at the time, and that was probably the easiest way for them mm-hmm. to get people to, um, you know, accept fault. Um, but I do think it's interesting, thinking about South Pacific, right? South Pacific, we talked about, was, like, a really specific um, story about a thing that was actually happening in um, in the world, right? Um, yeah. Versus, so, like, that happened, and that, that show was very successful, and then they started to, like, peel back, I don't know, the pages of history, and yeah. made this show about, sort of, like... Um, 1860s. Yeah, 1860s. And it's interesting, too, like, they sort of flip it in that um, the Americans in South Pacific are sort of, like, an invading force, mm-hmm. um, and here, um, and they're on an island that's, like, um, I mean, I don't want to say, I certainly don't mean less sophisticated, but... Um, the cultural is more tribal is portrayed as like more tribal. I guess that's still not a good word to use. It's it's. I guess Westerners would have called it primitive. It would have called it primitive, yeah. which is problematic. And um, I should come up with better vocabulary to say that. Um, yeah. Admittedly, but you look at the king and I, right? And like the setting of this is a huge, lush, sophisticated palace. Yeah. And so we have um, this like teacher showing up, and his you know by quote unquote Western standards, right? His palace is lush and sophisticated and filled with marble columns and draped gold and that, buddha gold, yeah which is particularly true in the the most recent revival mm-hmm. is like the setting um was really like to the nines and so mm-hmm. i don't know it's just an interesting like looking at them sort of tackling a similar quote-unquote similar topic from very different angles and just totally like subverting the setting you know? yeah um i guess let's get more into the show i i'm not sure like not there's not that much more we could say that we haven't already said we sort of pointed yeah. out yeah let's play some music maybe yeah let's definitely play some music um and i think this is i don't want to say this is their best musical score that i might give that one to sound of music but maybe maybe this is um i do think there shows south pacific king and i and sound of music those three are definitely in a league above i know some people think carousel has like beautiful music but i don't care um um, so here's I Whistle a Happy Tune. Um, so before we play Gertrude Lawrence... No, we didn't play Gertrude Lawrence. That's, that's Gertrude not Gertrude Lawrence, okay. Yeah, um, so this is the original I Whistle a Happy Tune with Gertrude Lawrence. Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect And whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid Yeah, I mean, she's no Kelly O'Hare, but she, yeah. was, she was a star. And she, and she doesn't... She does what she needs to do. Yeah, she hits the very serviceable. And they specifically wrote this for her. So. Yeah, it's also worth noting. Well, I'll get to it. I love this song. Yeah, I can tell. Jeremy's really enjoying Okay, it's a good song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it gets back to what you're saying, too. Like, it was really just about storytelling. I think there is, like, a preoccupation now, particularly when we revive these Broadway standards, about, like, who is the greatest vocalist, and, you know, really, mm-hmm. like, let's, like, ring these songs for, you know, all of the, like, um, you know, vocal pyrotechnics we can yeah. muster. And, like, that really wasn't the focus, as evidenced by um, the film version of Guys and Dolls, yeah. in which... Um, Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, which, like, Not I do think, like... Lady <laughs> Not be a lady tonight. Not be a lady tonight. Um, anyway, um, which, I mean, I don't know, would probably be pretty unacceptable today. 
Marlon oh, Brando? Actually, I don't know. No, okay. no, they're stunt casting just as bad now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth, like, think about, like, the Broadway oh, Russell, think of, think of Russell Crowe in, <laughs> in Les Mis. I think that's a good, um, a good equivalency. Yeah. You know I mean? But I'm also here Except Marlon Brando Crow. is a better actor and a better whoa, singer whoa. than Russell Crowe. I think Russell Crowe's a very good actor. And Guys and Dolls is a better musical okay, than okay. Les Mis. What? Hold on, we have to pause, because I have to pummel Jeremy. Okay, and we're back. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I um, think Russell Crowe is really set up to fail in Lamez. Oh, wait, down. let's go. I can't you're, 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 you're moving that chair. Hannah promised. She, <laughs> she, she decided to do this episode in the spinny chair. It's true. And I'm worried it's going to be too loud. Well, I didn't think you were going to make such an atrocious claim as um, Lamez is not as good a musical. She's squeaking all over the microphone. All right, so um, let it be known that um, I think Lamez is one of the greatest musicals ever written and is far superior. Ooh, guys that's going to be an interesting episode. I can't wait. Okay. I can't wait. This is I don't think it's bad. All right. Anyway, so clearly I don't think it's bad. Um, I think it's a little overrated. Oh my god. Okay. Anyway, so the King and I um, is where we are today. Um, so let's listen to let's, Kelly O'Hara. Yes. So that was Gertrude Lawrence. So it's a role that doesn't require an amazing singer, but it definitely Power. can have one. Here we're going to do "Getting to Know You," which uh, is Anna's other one of her other great songs. So here you go. It's a very ancient saying. She's teaching the the children of of Siam, the royal children. By your pupils, you'll be taught. As a teacher, I've been learning. You'll forgive me if I boast. And I've now become an expert on the subject I like most. Getting to know you. (laughs) Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. You are precisely my cup of tea. Uh, Her voice is so beautiful. That's like the best voice. Yeah, she's so good. Yeah, like... Another another, let's do another. Uh, let's do hello, hello, young lovers. Okay, maybe like let's start in the middle where we can really hear her going after it. Maybe like the end. Let's listen to like the final. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. It's, it's, it's gonna big intro on this one. Here we go. like a really stunning singer yeah mm-hmm. um like the role can support a gertrude lawrence yeah i don't think it's that blasphemous for me to say i prefer kelly o'hara no i mean i think role. i prefer kelly o'hara to most people in most roles so yeah, yeah um so that's really fun <laughs> um yeah what else is there to say we, we so, want to talk so about the ballroom number yeah shall we da- well let's let's take a little detour to the secondary couple tub mm-hmm. tim and lunta Great. They sort of because Rogers and Hammerstein love Hammerstein. Rogers and Hammerstein. Rogers and Hammerstein. Rogers and Hammerstein love their sort of romantic, uh, romantic things. I mean, Hammerstein back in the Showboat days has like, um, or like all these the conditional love song we used to talk about. Like people will say we're in love right. if I loved you. Eventually he, they got over that. And, yeah. Uh, but they still like the love song, and even though it's like no longer the rote formulaic conditional love song between mm-hmm. boring characters we don't care about. They still gotta have. You can't have a, a musical, even in 1951, without, like, a, a mushy love song. And I think, actually, this is one of the... Maybe the best mushy love song in the entire Rodgers and Hammerstein canon. And it's called... We Kiss in a Shadow. Okay, yeah. It goes on like that a little bit. Oh, okay. Here. 
Yeah, so it's like it's like that, and they sing together. Yeah. Hannah just like doesn't care. No, I care. <laughs> I'm listening. No, that's okay. No, it's beautiful. I, maybe I oversold it. No, it's beautiful. Now that I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, is this the best love song? I think I just said that. I just feel like ever since Broadway Man 5 went in on our podcast, there's a, a shadow of doubt. No, I think it's that <laughs> I used to think this was their best love song, but I haven't like really like memorized all of South Pacific yet. But now that I think about it, uh-huh. like South Pacific actually has like a few love songs that might be... In They're sadder. Of, the love songs in South Pacific are sadder. And, and, and they never sing at the same time, because the whole point was Mary Martin did not want to have her voice and Ezio Pinza at the same time, because his voice was, like, better. I mean, I don't know if I would say his voice was better, like, by the standards of the day okay. and, like, opera. Mm-hmm. Like, she thought his voice was better. I personally think hers was just as good. Just yeah. a different type of voice. Different type of voice. Okay, um, interesting. But then, yeah, this is more of a classical they, This They, like, sing together. Basically, when I say this is the best one, I mean, I much prefer the song to the love songs in, like, Oklahoma and Showboat. Oh, and sure. And, and yeah. probably even Carousel. Mm-hmm. Um, and there isn't really much of, like, a... When I'm thinking love songs in Sound of Music, I guess there's I'm 16 going on 17, which yeah, is very different. That's it's, not a love song. There's the one that, um, that the two adults sing together. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Not Idolize. No, no. It's, um, it's good. You'll, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. That one's no, pretty I good, mean, too. but like... That's know. a very understated, like, song. It's not like a very belty song like this yeah. one. Yeah. No, this is like a big... I mean, this is a really, like, a grand... Um, you know, our love's taking up lots of space yeah. and listen to the we just know, spent, epic violin. We just spent way more time on We Kiss in a Shadow than... Like, <laughs> no one has ever spent this much time talking about that song. That's good. That's why we have this podcast. Okay. Um, so let's get to, I think, the most exciting um, moment of the musical, which is the big dance. Shall we dance? Um, yeah, so Anna and the King have had this sort of like romantic tension um, the whole time. What? No, I have a relevant excerpt I'm going to read. Continue. Okay. So Anna and the king have been having this sort of romantic tension the whole time. They're both sort of into each other. She previously had a relationship with a guy named Tom. It didn't really work out. The king has all these wives, but he's not actually in love with any of them. Um, and like, she, and Anna's the first person to ever really challenge him in a way. So it sort of all breaks free, and they she teaches him how to waltz. And it's this big emotional waltz um, right before he grows ill and dies. But here's Shall We Dance. Oh, it's very exciting when you're young. You're sitting on a small gilt chair, your eyes lowered and terrified you'll be a wallflower. And then you see two black shoes, a white waistcoat, a face. It speaks. Even her speaking voice is amazing. Uh-huh. I've just been introduced. I do not know you well. But when the music started, something drew me to your side. So many men and girls are in each other's I always forget this intro. If I called this a waltz before, I was mistaken. This is not in three or four times. <laughs> God bless Ken Watanabe. Yeah. <laughs> really, he hits the notes, at least on the album. He does. I don't know if he hit them every night in the theater or not, but he hits them here. Okay. Yeah, okay, so I'm looking at a review, the same review by Ben Brantley, um, mm-hmm. just specifically talking about this moment. Um, so they talk a little bit about Ken Watanabe, um, and... Uh, 
Um, he sure comes across when it really counts. Shall We Dance, the number in which Anna teaches the king to trip the light, begins as a whimsical comic exercise. Then, at a certain point, Mr. Watanabe's eyes narrow, his voice deepens, and he firmly clasps his co-star's waist. Sex has entered the building. Um, <laughs> I just read that line. Yeah, no, okay, anyway, just like the pivotal moment. It's hard to explain, all, like, over a podcast what's great about this show than it is about South Pacific. Yeah. But for some reason, I prefer this one in a lot of ways it's mm-hmm. more the characters are more real they're less caricatures mm-hmm. il- who are created to illustrate a point they're more like real people with complicated feelings the relationships yeah. aren't always consummated the people don't realize in the end that like they have to change their ways and become good people it's a very complicated and you're witnessing a clash of cultures it's very complicated with a lot of layers, and there's mm-hmm. no clear resolution, and that's a good thing because life doesn't have clear resolutions. Right. I think it's it's just very interesting to sort of think about and like go home from the theater and just like sit around and like sort of think about it. Yeah, there's like less plot. I mean, that I think Merritt's mentioning like South Pacific. There's all these side plots. We talk about Luther, and I mean, I really can't not talk about this while also talking about it against the backdrop of South. Pacific. Yeah, no, of um, course. But you know, you've um, Luther and Bloody Mary, and 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 you know. Lieutenant and well, Amelia. Did you say lieutenant? Shut up. Or did you say <laughs> stop it? Um, and L- stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And um, lieutenant. Basically, like that is like a show with like a multi-pronged story. And versus like the king and I. I mean, you do your secondary couple, but it just feels like less happens. Like it's more of a. Je- it, it's like a more complicated and um, I don't know less less like less busyness is happening. Less Does that less. Make sense? Less yeah. busy. It, it also feels shorter. I think it might be shorter. Yeah. Um, we didn't. We haven't talked about Small House and Michael Thomas, which is really cool. Mm. Um, the idea was based on. I, I don't know if it's the novel version or the movie version, but there was a, a story in one of these older versions of um, one of the slaves of um, of the king reading about Abraham Lincoln because this was contemporaneous with Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War in America, and. Um, Roger Hammerstein decided to do a ballet, mm-hmm. um, and this whole thing was choreographed by Jerome Robbins. By the way, I don't believe we've seen him since On the Town in 1944. I, I like him. I believe Broadway Binge last saw him in On the Town in 1944, but he has been very busy in between 1944 and 1951. What was he busy with? I don't remember. But he's definitely <laughs> been busy, and he's going to get way busier. He's going to get way busier in the future. Um, we love history. You know what he was doing? He was probably like doing all of his like ballet and like uh, yeah, sort that. of like lyrical jazz sure. dancing company stuff like well what well, what dance other than like the big shall we dance merits mentioning um and I, so that i mean that was crazy so th- there's two things one of them was there's the march of the mm-hmm. siamese this is, isn't what i was about to say but i i like this music we'll just play a little bit of it it's an instrumental piece um no lyrics all the siamese children march across the stage they're like introduced to anna for the first time and it's just a really great piece of music the whole thing would take too long so i'm not gonna play like it's only two minutes but let's just listen to a little bit of it I guess I won't let the whole thing run. Um, <laughs> it's only two minutes. I mean, you all listening out there, this will all be in the uh, Broadway Binge yeah. Listen Along Spotify playlist that I keep updating with, with songs from these things. And you can also just find The King and I. Um, I. This is the kind of thing, like, I mean, obviously, like, the movie's always a good thing to do. But, like, just listening to the soundtrack, it's, it's a nice thing yeah, to listen no, to I mean, in the background. Beautiful. It does. This is... I don't know. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. But listening to it, it does um, remind me a little bit of The Nutcracker in the way that it's, like... The Nutcracker is like written by one person, um, mm-hmm. and sort of like the sort of like quote unquote like intercultural ballet when they're like trying to estimate like what all these other cultures sound yeah. like orchestrally. And I actually haven't thought about this before, but like the ways in which you know I'm sure like I don't know um, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's idea of what this culture's music might sound like, and the ways that trickles into the score, and how that's like you know, I mean it makes for a really interesting and lush score because I think they're trying to combine like different sonic elements that mm-hmm. say Oklahoma that's really like Americana but also like you know is troubling you know? yeah there's a long yeah. tradition um, which is both very rich culturally and also yeah. troubling 
of you know Western people right. sort of like modeling Oriental Asia. I say Oriental because like they were thought like Orientalism, like the Orient, the yeah, the ones of the Orient, right, right. Um, like modeling Asian art. And this is sort of different from like I mean it is also like a part of cultural appropriation, but it's a yeah. different thing. And they're like very upfront acknowledging like this is not our culture, this is their culture, and we know they do it better than us, but we're going to model it. And try to like do our spin because we're so inspired. I'm thinking of like Claude Monet. Yeah. And um, there was like a whole movement in France for sort of Japanese. I think it was called like Japonisme. It was like the art movement of like sort of like they started getting all these like like these like woodblock prints from Japan. Like the prints you see like everyone has in their dorm room of Mount Fuji and stuff. Yeah. Sort of would inspire the French painters. Um, I think the maybe the water lily paintings were a little inspired by this. The, The lily garden in general that Monet had. So this is sort of like a thing in Western culture, like. Like, sort of, like, we love this thing that they're doing, so, like, because I love it so much, I'm going to imitate it. Not to say that I'm better than it, but because I'm inspired by it, but also, like, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, 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 yeah, there's problems. I mean, right, and, like, there's the question, right, and this sort of gets back to, like, the bigger issue, right, of, like, why do this show, and, like, yes, it's beautiful and lush, and, like, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe run it in rep with something written by somebody Asian um, from their perspective, you know? Like, then everyone would just only go to this one not see the... That's, I hope, not true. I don't think that's true. Oh, no, true. that's definitely true. If someone was doing King and I in rep with, like a, like, a show that no one's ever heard of before... I don't know. People would go see King and I. I mean, or it would amplify the voice of someone who we should be heard Oh, it would definitely from. amplify the yeah. voice of someone. So, yeah, they should probably do it. <laughs> but the problem is, I don't know if it would make financial sense or not. Well, that's a... Bigger a bigger issue. issue. Yeah, okay, dun, so hold dun, on. Dun, I, ta- I take that back. We should not be making our theatrical decisions purely on what people are going to come see. We should also be making our theatrical decisions based on, like, what is good for society. Hey. Um, so, so, anyway. Okay, yeah. What else we got? Um, I mean, there's one other song I could see. Um, there's a song, Something Wonderful, where the king's head wife, the mother of Chu Longhorn, um, sings about, like, she sings to Anna, like, yes, I know the king is terrible. Anna's really upset and she wants to go home. And she comes to intercede and say, Anna, you shouldn't leave. The king does have lots of flaws, but there's something wonderful about him. And this is a song sort of in the same, like, family of songs of, like, uh, Mother Superior and Sound of Music and, mm-hmm. like, and um, You'll Never Walk Alone in Carousel. Like, the older woman comes in and, like, belts yeah. out, like, a nice ballad. Hey, this is Jeremy here without Hannah. I just wanted to uh, re-record this part in later on. I realized that we never actually circled around and talked about Small House of Uncle Thomas. We got sidetracked by talking about the uh, March of the Royal Children. So uh, basically, Small House of Uncle Thomas, it is a little play, sort of a ballet, put on by um, people in the King's Court, led by Tuptim, who's in the secondary couple, to sort of show the play of Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, which is about a slave escape, and to basically indicate how in that story, which was already by that point acclaimed as you know a great moral tale, um, everyone agrees that the slave master is the evil villain and that the slaves are the good guys, and yet here you have the king um, of Thailand holding slaves, and the story is basically being told by a slave. And she gets in a lot of trouble for putting this on afterwards because she sort of stands up after the play is done and connects the dots and explicitly says that this should not be happening in Thailand. So she's probably going to get executed and Anna helps her escape. So I'll just play a little bit of The Small House of Uncle Thomas just so you can sort of hear what it sounds like. This is the kind of thing where you really need to see it to appreciate it. And it's also quite long, but I'll just play a little bit to give you a sense. Your Majesty. And honorable guests, I beg to put before you small house of Uncle Thomas. Small house of Uncle Thomas. Small house of Uncle Thomas. Written by a woman, Harriet 
And they have all kinds of like hijinks and Because one slave has run away, Simon beating every slave. Very dramatic. But a sad ending. I do not believe Topsy oh, here. is wicked critter. Because I too am glad for death of king. Of any king who pursues a slave who is unhappy and wish to join her lover. And your majesty, I wish to say to you. Okay, that's the end of that. Uh, so there you go. Now I will uh, send you right back to Hannah and my conversation. Okay, let's rank this show. Yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> On that note. Yeah, I was about to like, apologize. Like, sorry for this being such a short episode. It's actually not a short, not episode. A short episode. We just recorded a monster of South Pacific, so fe- this it feels, feels short, short in but comparison. But actually, it's a very reasonably length episode. Yeah, for yes. sure. Um, okay, so take us through it, Jeremy. Okay, so we're going to talk about first, was this important? Uh, like, how important was this to the future of um, American musical theater and also just American society at large? Next, we're going to say, was it good compared to only the shows that had come out before it? How good do we think it was compared to those shows? And then the third score, is it good today? If it was put up today, how good do we think it is? Great. I already know I'm higher on the show than Hannah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess... Okay, I'll, take it away. Was or it, I can give my rating. You give, you give yours first because I actually haven't decided how important I think it was yet. Okay, so what's how important? How important was it? I'm going to give it a... I'm going to give it a seven and a half. That's interesting. That's higher than I am. Wait, no! Too late, you can't go back. No! You can't go back, you're stuck. <laughs> okay, I'm well. glad. Because there's nothing important about this show. There's, there's literally nothing important. Like, I mean, not nothing. I mean, not culturally, I thought it was culturally significant was where I was coming from. Yeah, maybe. I'm like, I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know whose like, mind it changed about anything. Like, we'd already done like a similar thing with South pulling, I don't know, I was pulling this conversation into the mainstream. It was allowing us to think like retroactively about cultural classes historically on main stage Broadway. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree. Um, I'll I give it... I so many stupid words in that. I'm, I'm going to give it a 5.5. Wow. I, I, I love this show. I'm so angry. I'm I just curious. Don't, I can't believe I did this. Uh, you know what? Um, Filled with regret. I'm, I'm actually going to, at this point, uh, read a little bit of reviews. We okay. didn't do this with South Specific. They were, they were all great, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just say. Okay. Um, here is some critical reception of The King and I. Um, Richard Watts in the New York Post said, Another triumph for the masters. Critic John Mason Brown stated, They have done it again. <laughs> the New York Times drama critic Brooks Atkinson wrote, this time, Messrs. Rogers and Hammerstein are not breaking any fresh trails, mm. but they are accomplished artists of song and words in the musical theater. And The King and I is a beautiful and lovable musical play. Uh, barely less enthusiastic, John Lardner in The New Yorker, who wrote, Even those of us who find the Rogers and Hammerstein musicals a little too unremittingly wholesome are bound to take pleasure in the high spirits and technical skill that their authors and producers have put into them. That's interesting that they call them wholesome. I mean, yeah, fair, but anyway, okay. Um, oh, interesting. Musicals, Otis, Otis Guernsey of the New York Herald Tribune said, Musicals and leading men will never be the same after last night. Brenner set an example that will be hard to follow. Probably the best show of the decade. Interesting. Um, a okay. lot of good stuff. In London, it was less well-received. Um, one per sense. The London Daily Express called this work the treacle bin Mikado. Oh, no! Not that! That's funny. Um... But one anonymous critic of the Times compared the work to Gilbert and Sullivan, saying, Mr. Rogers charmingly echoes Sullivan in the King's more topsy-turvy moments. Now, I will say this stands up way better than the Mikado. Although, also, I think some of the Mikado, some of the criticism against the Mikado, and this could be a controversial statement, is, I think, undeserved, because people are sort of, like, thinking that Mikado is a satire of Japan, and that it's, like, like when all the characters are, like, being really stupid and, like, terrible, it's, like like, an old racist critique of Japan in the 1800s, when really the show is a critique of London and, like, the English government and society, and they just sort of put it in a foreign country, like, to highlight, like, if you saw what we're doing here in England, but in in another country, you'd realize that what we're doing is really stupid. Sure. I think that sort of nuance is lost in a lot of the criticism of the Mikado, but, like, at the same time, I'm also not going to, like, fight for the Mikado Let's not defend the Mikado. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I do I I, I just wanted to mention that. Anyway. And aside. Okay, um, so back to the ranking. Back to the ranking. Okay, so now we're going to say... So basically, that's my justification in part for saying that it's okay. uh, it's not super groundbreaking. Like I can't all believe the... you gave it a seven and a half. I'm full okay. Of now, okay, was it good? Okay, I'm gonna give it a seven and a half. Okay, I'm gonna give it a nine. 
Now, see, I'm looking back. I, I, no, 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 I'm not changing. I'm not changing it. I'm just saying I'm looking and I see that I gave South Pacific a 10 in Was It Good? Mm-hmm. I think that was too high. I can't uh, go back and change know, it. You know, you can't go back now. I mean, I'm kind of glad that it unseated the previous champs, but, mm-hmm. like, maybe it shouldn't have. Maybe if I'd given that a 9, we would have a three-way tie like, for first. I mean, I don't think we, you know, it would be one thing if oh, we, okay. we came up with these, you know, later. We could do, we could always, a week later, deliver our scores for the previous week, but that's no. not how we're doing it. You're it's right. got to okay, be fast and loose. Okay, 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 okay. I shouldn't have given it a 10. That was dumb. I don't nah, know. Th- that. Th- okay. Um, I mean, I love South Park. Okay. Now, is it good? If it was released today, how good is it? I'm giving it an 8, which is actually 0.5 higher than I gave South Pacific because I do think this is a better show than South Pacific today. I'm going to give it a 6.5. Just because okay. it's not my cup of tea. <laughs> That's fair. Okay, now we're going to do the part where I. It's on a <laughs> calculator. It's a cup of tea because uh, that's one of the lyrics. Uh, my my <laughs> cup of tea. Anyway. Okay. okay. We clearly it's time for us to say goodbye now. <laughs> All right. We've just done the calculations, and I gave it a score of twenty-two point five. Hannah gave it a score of twenty-one point five. Her bizarrely high. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> wasn't important. Uh, made her score really similar to mine, so that gives it a grand total of forty-four. Um. Where does that fit in the rankings? I don't know exactly where that fits in the rankings. Here, I'll cut this out while I think about it. Um, so basically, it's above Annie Get Your Gun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's actually in fourth place. That's correct. Yeah. Okay, so now this is in fourth place. We have South Pacific in first, a two-way tie for second, which is Guys and Dolls in Oklahoma. And then The King and I is in fourth place, which I think is an appropriate landing spot. I think that sounds good. It's two points ahead of Showboat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's way less important than Showboat, but like much better. So yeah, mm-hmm. I feel like this is a real good spot. Also two points, or like one point ahead of Andy Get Your Gun. Two yeah, points I ahead love, of Andy Get I Your Gun. I love the way yeah. that our um, opinions are developing over time. Yeah, I think our rankings are actually really great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're we, learning. We, 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 you and I and Todd. We balance of, each other out. Yeah, it's, it's good. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us, friends. Uh, yeah, be sure to uh, subscribe to Broadway Binge, any podcast app. You'll be able to get the episodes as soon as they come out. If you do that, you can also find our episodes on our website, broadwaybinge.podbean.com. We're on Twitter at Broadway underscore binge. Leave us a tweet. We might say it on air. Follow us on Instagram. It's called Broadway Binge. At Broadway Binge. At Broadway Binge. There's no underscore. Just Broadway. No underscore. Um, it's great. Um, it's great fun. We've got our little Spotify playlist, the listen, uh, Broadway Binge Listen Along playlist, And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, which will help more people discover the podcast. Our next episode is going to be the Three Penny Opera, which is kind of out of order. Um, But we love it. Yeah, because I think the original, it was like originally in Germany and then translated to English. It sort of doesn't fit in with the narrative, but we also can't really avoid talking about it. No, we must. And we'll take a little break from this this lush lush nonsense. Yeah, so I slotted in for the 1954 revival, which... Mm -hmm. Maybe we should have done it before now, but anyway, like, we'll talk about it. Um, oh, we'll talk about it. All right, see you guys next week at Three Penny Opera. Bye. Bye.